and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write a dissertation, uh, raise a kid, now survive wildfires, uh, and maybe improbably uh, to get a job. Um, and today I'm joined by my former colleague, Dr. Andrea Horbinski. Uh, Andrea holds a PhD in modern Japanese history from Cal with a designated emphasis in new media. Um, she has a book manuscript, Manga's Global Century, uh, which is a history of, of, of Japanese comics uh, from 1905 to 1989. Uh, and that book manuscript uh, just has a book proposal that's just been polished. Uh, right, 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 Andrea? Uh, yes, I'm finishing revisions right now. So hopefully um, soon. Within a year or two, you'll be able to read this fantastic book on the shelves. Um, you can find more of her stuff at ahorbinski.com. Um, I will also put a link to her website and to her academic articles on the website, my website, historian.live. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Andrea. Thank you. Um, so, Andrea, your, 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 your dissertation covers a, a, a gigantic period of time, 1905 to 1989. Uh, and at one point, I wanted to do the entire thing and, and, and start off with these cool, like, you know, punchy comics that, and, and do the whole story. But it's too much. And we're going to start in 1963. But I just I just want to like, I don't know much about Japanese history. Like, I know, OK, like in the 19th century, Japan was like this modernizing imperial power, right? Like it was this scrappy non-white nation that managed to like build up a ton of industry and like win a ton of wars against like Russia and stuff. World War One happens. It's like a world power it slowly gets an empire, uh, takes over parts of China. And then during the second world war, a lot of, of Asia, then world war two happens. It loses the war. And I have no idea what happens next. Can you fill us in from that point to 1963? Yeah. Um, so as you said, Japan had taken this course in the 19th century, which was designed to uh, play on an equal footing with uh, the white industrializing Western powers. Uh, and they succeeded and had this empire in Asia, some of which was uh, acknowledged by other world powers uh, stuff. Uh, from about the World War I period and before, and others of which was uh, sort of acquired through less uh, legal means. All of that went away on August 15th, 1945, uh, when Japan unconditionally surrendered. And uh, all of the colonies in Asia became independent overnight. Uh, many Japanese uh, subjects uh, were uh, trapped abroad. Many uh, people in, who were in uh, the home islands, the metropole, who were imperial subjects from Korea and Taiwan, uh, were stuck in the metropole islands for uh, years or permanently. Um, and their descendants live there to this day. So um, what happened was that uh, the Western powers uh, occupied Japan from 1945 until 1952, uh, when the Treaty of San Francisco was signed and uh, returned Japan its sovereignty and uh, sort of a provisional place in the international order. Um, through the 1950s up until the 1964 mm -hmm. Olympics, it was difficult for most Japanese uh, citizens to get a passport to travel abroad. Uh, it was much easier for Americans in particular, but uh, other, you know, sort of white Europeans to travel to Japan. Um, but for most people uh, in, in Japan, passport normalization didn't really happen until the mid 1960s. So, so like, is Japan poor at this time or like in my, in my, like in my head, it's like, just like robots and like cool technology. <laughs> and like in the 19th century where I, I know more like Japan's like really advanced, like, yeah, is it, it, what's it like? Yeah, I mean, Japan was in this weird position where um, before sort of the forced reintegration into the world order uh, in the 1850s, um, you know, the Japan's early modern economy had been extremely advanced, extremely high levels of literacy um, and extremely high rates of commercialization. Um, but when they did reintegrate with the world order um, and went particularly when they went on the world silver standard, um, the economy created overnight in the 1870s. Uh, 
And so uh, there was this drive over the course of the next sort of uh, roughly, you know, what is it, 80 years until uh, the the end of the World War II um, to sort of uh, regain this economic power that they'd had or to have it for the first time on the world stage. Um, But again, in 1945, uh, after the uh, particularly after the fire bombings of Japanese cities and, uh, of course, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and also um, the uh, invasion of the Okinawa Islands. Uh, most of the Japanese islands really are just ruined. I mean, those fire bombings were really profound. Like, we don't really pay a ton of attention to them. Can you just tell us, like, what, what, like, what happens after the fire bombings of the cities? Because usually, when we think of like 1945 in Japan, we think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but, but. It, they they were not the only cities destroyed by aerial bombardment. Like what happened? Like what's the effect of these fire bombings? I mean, almost every major city was destroyed by aerial bombardment. One of the reasons uh, that Hiroshima was the first uh, city that was bombed in with the atomic bomb was that it had been actually kept off the fire bombing target lists um, because. Uh, the people in charge wanted a, a better experimental control site as opposed to having already bombed a devastated site. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of lives lost and in terms of areas of area, area of cities destroyed, the fire bombings, particularly of Tokyo in um, March, were much more destructive. Uh, many thousands of people lost their lives. Many uh, lots of. Uh, excuse me, many areas of cities were destroyed. And in particular, Tokyo, um, if you look at photos from before the war, uh, really, actually, it's kind of surprising how much it looks like, say, London Mm. um, or Brussels. You know, it had had this sort of uh, imperial architecture, uh, lots of statuary that was very much in this kind of European civilized mode. Um, huh. And a lot of those buildings just didn't survive the fire bombings. So there's there's a couple of spots where you can see some of the older structures. In particular, uh, in Ueno Park, you can go to uh, some of the National Museums of Tokyo, the National Children's Library, where I spent some time doing research for this book at various points. Um, those structures are from, you know, like the 19, early 1900s, and they do look sort of very, uh, quote unquote, European. But um, in practice, you know, between the uh, fire bombings and then the occupation also ordering a lot of uh, surviving statues removed, um, Japan's built built urban's landscape looks very different than it did before 1945. Mm. Um, so in 1945, there's the occupation. Um, Japan, the home islands are very broke for a very long time. Um, there was a thriving black market. Um, there was a lot of widespread hunger and starvation um, because the occupation did not put much thought into providing food supplies uh, for the civilian population. School children got lunches. Um, including powdered skim milk. I've, I've met people who were children during that time reminiscing unhappily about powdered skim milk. Um, but so the, the driving force, the driving force on the Japanese side during the occupation is regaining sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, in 1952, the driving force becomes economic recovery, mm-hmm. which happens by 1956, um, when the pr- wow. prime minister at the time, uh, declares that they have uh, reached where they were before the war started. Um, and, and what really happened during that period, uh, this, these 11 years, was an explosion of labor activism, um, particularly around uh, steel mills and these sort of other large industrial plants. Um, there was an explosion of left-wing activism because it was no longer uh, suppressed by the states. Japan had its first socialist prime minister during the occupation. Um, so, but by 1956, uh, you know, as as the drive come becomes not just to sort of regain what was lost, but to keep going, uh, Japan, the society begins to sort of reorient around this concept of GDP growth, um, and at the same time, uh, you know, labor activism begins to be seen um, as the socialist governments are uh, replaced by people who had been. Uh, in power during the war or their close colleagues. Uh, labor activism comes to be seen as a potential danger, um, which it had been, uh, of course, during the 1920s and 30s, especially when it was suppressed. Um, but 
now it's sort of tamed by the creation of corporate unions um, over the course of the 1950s and 60s. Okay, so I, 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 have, I have a question about, about this economic recovery. Like I, so if I think about Japan today and I think about what Japan makes, it's, I mean, I'm ignorant. It's, it's like video games and electronics. When, we, when you talk about an economic recovery, when you talk about these businesses, what kind of things are people making? Are they making like electronics? Are they making like food? Like, are they making like, what, 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 what? I, I know in like the 80s and, 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 and 90s, uh, one of the things that Donald Trump was really like freaked out about was Japan like making stuff. But like, what were they making? No, it's it's an extremely good question, um, because I think, as you say, um, sort of the current memories or the current knowledge of what Japan makes, and in particular sort of memories of fights about Japanese trade goods in the 80s have kind of erased a lot of the memories of the 50s. Um, and really what Japan is making at this point that is being sold abroad uh, is kind of not primary products, but sort of low quality. What's a primary product? Um, like, you know, steel and stuff. Um, so Japan, um, this has been a problem for Japan the whole time is that they don't have massive iron deposits in the country, but, um, you know, that was solved again through global trade. But so at this point, one of the things that's sort of most common for people to encounter outside of Japan, um, is tin toys. Hmm. Um, and in fact, robot toys were robot tin toys were a, uh, key product, uh, in the Astro Boy uh, media mix. Um, and, and Astro Boy toys were, in fact, one of the first examples when uh, those tin toys were sold in Japan rather than just being made for export because okay. economic growth had proceeded to the point of Astro Boy in 1963 and 64 when it was possible for uh, Japanese households to obtain those goods again um, and had enough disposable income to do so. Um, they also, uh, there was a lot of sort of replacing of kind of Chinese products on the market, uh, Chinese bric-a-brac. So in 1949, of course, uh, you know, the communists had taken over uh, China and sent the Republic officials fleeing to Taiwan. Uh, And with that result, um, China was closed to the world economy for several decades. So Japan really um, took over in terms of producing, you know, sort of Orientalist uh, brick a brick a brick, yeah. Um, and this is something I've actually sort of noticed, uh, you know, at estate sales here in the Bay Area, or uh, you know, looking through my older relatives' possessions, um, being like, uh, you know, I, I was I was told that you know my grandmother had a Japanese teacup that uh, my aunts and uncles wanted me to have, and I was expecting you know like a like a tea bowl, a cha wan, and instead it's you know it's uh, very sort of uh, 1950s imagining of like a Chinese dragon, uh, you know, this very tiny, like Western style porcelain teacup. And I was just like, what? Um, so there was a lot of stuff like that that was also produced for export. Um, and I think everybody involved really sort of doesn't talk about that much anymore. But that was uh, that was sort of the main stuff that was made for export. So there's a flexible export oriented manufacturing industry that's focusing on that, that, that that's focusing on a bunch of different kinds of, of consumer goods that aren't like really bulky. We're not talking about like, you know, train tunnels. We're talking about like small things that like have high value add from 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 manufacturers. Um, let's jump to 1963. Let's 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 get to 1963 and talk about the good times and talk about that lovely, lovely boy, Astro Boy. Yeah, um, and I should just add one more thing about the economic recovery. Is really that. Um, the Korean War was a turning point. Um, mm. Until that point, uh, there had been serious talk of sort of keeping Japan as an agrarian economy in this sort of deindustrialized, uh, subservient position. But when the Korean War kicked off, uh, U.S. officials in particular, since the occupation was mostly run by American officials, uh, realized that they needed uh, an industrial power in Asia close to uh, Korea. And then, of course, also tensions with China were skyrocketing and the Soviet Union at that point as well. Uh, So uh, Japan's heavy industries were really uh, re-energized and uh, brought back online by the Korean War. Mm. Uh, And the prosperity that that brought about was really what sort of uh, powered the recovery through 1956. 
Um, but yeah, so 1963, uh, it's uh, Tezuka Asamu, who of course is known as the god of manga. Um, he had wanted to be uh, an animator himself. Uh, he was obsessed with animation um, from a child, uh, from his childhood, as well as with manga. And he had actually, I believe, applied to work at Toei Studios during the occupation, but there well, were what's control- Toei Studios. Toei Studios is uh, one of the major movie studios uh, in Japan. It was founded in the early 1900s, either 1910s or 1920s. Um, And they survived the war and uh, they were well known uh, by the early 1950s as being the the movie studio that made sort of feature length animation uh, that was Japan's sort of answer to Disney. Mm. Uh, at that point and, and feature length animation had come to Japan in the twenties and thirties. Uh, Felix, the cat was very popular. There was a uh, homegrown animation based on manga, uh, particularly Nora Kuro, uh, who's a particular favorite of mine, uh, and other feature length animations. Betty Boop was extremely popular, um, as well. So animation was well known in Japan before the war and, uh, animation propaganda films were also made a few of them. Uh, during the war featuring uh, Japanese folktale figures and such. Um, So Tezuka really wanted to be an animator, but he was not allowed to because of employment caps during the occupation. Uh, So he turned to manga and uh, he did also uh, get his medical license, but he never practiced um, in Hmm. in medicine. He uh, devoted his career uh, to manga uh, exclusively very quickly. And so um, by 1963, he was living in Tokyo um, and he had really wanted for a long time to get back into animation or get into animation formally for a while. Um, So he helped out on storyboards um, with Toei uh, in the early 1960s. And um, through that experience, sort of uh, got enough connections with animators at the studio, um, people like him who were dissatisfied with sort of emulating the Disney style of animation, um, which is uh, technically called full limited animation. Um, So which means that it's uh, 24 frames per second, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to... uh, so, so that's one frame of animation per second. It's very labor intensive. It's designed to mimic, um, you know, live action film to the extent that animation can. Um, and, and this is the Disney sort of look of Disney feature length films. Um, but it's very expensive animation. Um, basically all motion costs money. And so, uh, you know, if you want to sort of break out of that Toei Disney paradigm as Tezuka and some of the people he recruited to work with him did, what they decided to do was, um, to stop, um, stop with this full animation business and, you know, cut corners, Hmm. um, in, and also not just cut corners, but also look for sort of a different visual paradigm. Um, so they were inspired not only by manga, um, they said they wanted to do manga in motion, but also um, by Kami Shibai, which was um, a form of street theater that flourished uh, in during the occupation and sort of through the 1950s. Um, there would be a dude, almost almost inevitably a dude, I'm not sure I ever have heard of a female Kami Shibai performer during the time, um, who would walk around the neighborhood and he would have this sort of portable theater stand with these heavy cards um, with illustrations on them. Uh, he would pass out candy. So you would buy a piece of candy for a very small amount of money. Um, and then buying the piece of candy was your sort of entitlement to sit or, sit or stand around while um, the Kamishibai man performed a story using these boards, um, which he would sort of slide across one another to reveal different parts of the image. Uh, And also crucially, um, they did a lot of vocal effects as they were telling the story to imitate, you know, different characters in the story, uh, imitate different um, parts of, you know, sound effects or creatures in the story. Um, And if you listen to Kami Shibai performances, um, there are some good ones on YouTube. There's also some bad ones on YouTube. Uh, You can very obviously tell that the Kamishibai vocal performance had a lot of effect on um, this sort of anime voice acting and still does. Um, well, let me, let me, let me just, let me just recap what Kamishibai is just so that I can, I can, I can picture it in my mind. So we have a, a street performer walking down 
down the street, hands out candy, sets up like a little like stall or like a little tent and then brings out like a board. Like how big is this board? Like I'm imagining it's like a, like a, like a small TV size. Yeah. The, the cards that I've seen for sale um, at flea markets are maybe about legal size. I believe that's a four okay. paper, um, yeah. roughly that size. And it wasn't a tent. It was like a, like a wooden stand, kind of like an easel maybe where, okay. you know, a little wooden theater stand where you, you could slide the cards around. Um, and the story was printed on the back um, to give the Kamishibai performer um you know, sort of cues for what they were supposed to be performing. Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of those Kami Shibai sets were produced by uh, either former manga creators who needed money or uh, people who would become manga creators hmm. who needed money. And so, these, um, so these were mass produced, the Kami Shibai Yeah, um, they were mass produced. It was particularly popular in Osaka, was the source of a lot of Kami Shibai sets. But there was a lot of this going on in Tokyo as well and, and other urban centers. Um, so the Kamishibai man would sort of wander around and then neighborhood children would come out. Um, yeah, and, and, and you're moving around cards. So like it's little paper, like I'm imagining like little paper uh, uh, dolls and like like pop-up books sort of things that, that will tell a particular story. Yeah, except, you know, just the, the story is broken into images that are, uh, you know, that are static on these on mm. these cards. They're kind of, they're cardboard, um, thick paper stock. And so... Uh, you know, the, the visual interest comes from the Kami Shibai man moving the cards around and moving, you know, sort of these layers of images over one another, which is particularly um, what Tezuka and his fellow animators were inspired to do when they created um, Astro Boy and when they created TV anime. Um, so uh, in animation, to sort of briefly get very technical, uh, you know, you have these uh, layers of film cells, uh, and you film looking down with the animation camera. Um, so the innovation of Tezuka and company was that they decided to move the layers of the cells, um, sort of across one another laterally within the camera. Um, so that produces various effects in the anime image field, um, which, uh, we are sort of reaching the limits of my technical understanding here. So um, if you want to read more about this, uh, Tom Lamar has uh, written a lot about sort of the anime image and, and the significance of the layers. Uh, he has a book called The Anime Machine, which um, is not entirely easily easily understood. But the first couple chapters um, have some pretty good illustrations to show what he's talking about. So Tessica is, is a manga artist. And Tezuka just is in love with movies and wants to make movies and can't yeah. because it's too expensive. But then he, he manages to gather a bunch of artists together and he has this innovation. Look, rather than do the full expensive Disney thing where it's full of motion and we like animate Cinderella's dress flapping in the wind to the music, we're going to do it on the cheap. And we're going to take our page from Kamishibai performances, which rather than having these beautiful movement movements shown by different cells, instead use a bunch of static images where the arrangement of the cells and the, the, the composition of the image suggests movement rather than, you know, portrays it directly. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, uh, the other and the key point too is, of course, you know the this vocal effects um, derived from Kamishibai. So people are used to watching it, like they, they they know how to watch this sort of performance. Like they're not they're not like, oh, this is a boring still image with a bunch of weird talking going on. Yeah, no. When when people watched Astro Boy for the first time, uh, they were really you know they were drawn into it immediately. They said, you know, this is like manga in motion. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Uh, the, the vocal effects of, of voice acting derived from Kamishibai and also from stuff like manga sound effects. Um, and uh, they also were very uh, inspired by using sort of uh, cinematic techniques derived from manga or, or rather visual techniques meant to sort of look like cinema um, from manga to, again, sort of create more uh, like these, these ideas of motion in the image rather than actual motion, because, again, that costs money. Um, and uh, the other thing they did um, was to, rather than do full in animation, which is often called on ones, 
um, they decided that they would normally animate on twos, um, which is uh, instead of so in twenty four instead of twenty four frames per second, it's twelve. Mm. Um, sometimes you'll also see anime done on threes, um, which would be eight frames per second, which is extraordinarily slow um, to save money uh, because again, that money is is the key limiting factor here. Um, but it was still, uh, you know, even with all these sort of ways to save money and ways to not draw as much, um, it was still wildly expensive. Um, and it was too expensive to get any TV station to agree to pick it up. So Tezuka decided that he would, um, cut half of the cost of the episodes off of, you know, the price he offered to TV stations and that they would then try to recoup the other half of the costs through essentially merchandising. Um, and so this worked, uh, TV Tokyo, yeah, TV Tokyo bought Tezuka's, uh, anime Astro Boy. Uh, it was licensed for distribution outside Japan as well. Um, it aired in the States in the same period. And, uh, most, most children who were watching it in the States had no idea that it was originally a Japanese show. Um, Hmm. I believe it was shown in other countries as well, but, um, so Tezuka and company, this has been called sort of Tezuka's curse, this under underselling of anime relative to its actual production costs. Um, but it also, you know, because they needed to make up 50% of the production costs through other means, it also really enabled this sort of other set of relations between sort of the, the media product and other sort of derivative products. Um, so I think the, the evidence is that I think it initially Tezuka was thinking of recouping a lot of the production costs through manga sales um, because uh, all of his companies were called Mushi Productions at this point, um, which is a play on the kanji in his name. And um, they were not well run and they were also not really run separately. Um, So, you know, the evidence I've seen is that, you know, he was basically sort of personally plowing manga profits that Mm. he had got through his publishers back into the studio um, but as time went on, more and more uh, sort of licensed merchandise began uh, selling like hotcakes. Um, so Mark Steinberg, who wrote a great book about this, um, uh, he talks about uh, Adam's te- Tetsuwan Adam stickers um, were a huge thing. Uh, that the the tin toys were another huge uh, sort of innovation. Uh, let me let me let me just let me just recap this. So we have. This big innovation of 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 Astro Boy, which is to make the animation cheap by by borrowing from this street performance style, and by animating on the twos rather than by the ones. The animation is a little bit jerkier. It's a little. It's less. It's less labor intensive, but still, that's too expensive. And the other innovation is to sell it for half of the price it costs to make, and just to assume that it's going to be recouped by licensed merchandise. Is that right? Yes. So it's, so it's assuming that, 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 that people will love it enough to go out and to buy Astro Boy. You mentioned tin robots, stickers, like I'm think like what other, what other things are people buying that, that, that is giving um, Mushi Productions enough money to keep on making Astro Boys? Um, well, the stickers came with chocolates. Uh, so the, the stickers were sold with Meiji chocolates, which you can still buy in these little cardboard canisters. Um, and they make a fun sound when you open them. Uh, but the thing that people noticed for the first time with Astro Boy and the stickers and the chocolates is that uh, children would buy the chocolates and then just like throw them away. You know, like, I don't even care about the chocolate. I'm here for the stickers, which was a new behavior in terms of sort of, you know, con- consumer habits. Um, and, and Mark Steinberg talks about the ways in which like stickers, um, and other stuff, other products that were sold were really around, allowed child consumers to kind of reconfigure their spaces, um, to sort of be, uh, Adam fans, um, in a way that I think is sort of very normal to us now, but at the time was really unusual. Um, and it also brings these sort of capitalist relations of consumption 
into, um, you know, the home, into, you know, children's rooms, into, um, you know, one, one place you see the stickers a lot is like on stationary sets at school or whatever. Um, so really sort of bringing capitalism into these places where it hadn't really been before. I, I mean, this is, I just, I want to slow, slow, go slowly over this because it's so familiar to me because yeah. I, when I was a kid, I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and what did I do? Well, I asked for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys every single day. Um, and I did get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys and I got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stickers, which I stuck on my bed and on my planner. And like all my room was like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle branded. And like I was part of this economic complex that, that you're saying is developed by, 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 by Astro Boy, at least in Japan. Yeah. Um, and so like these, these shows are expensive to make and they're, they're, they're relying on the fact that people will become fans, that people will fall, children at this point will fall in love with them enough to give them that extra money. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, it worked. And it is, I think, you know, sort of hard for us to sort of cast our minds back and to be, you know, to remember, you know, in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, toys were sort of much less mimetic, much less sort of representing pre-existing characters. Um, the emphasis was much more on sort of, you know, imaginative play, mm. uh, you know, that was made up out of the children's minds, sort of whole cloth. Um, and, um, you know, the Atom products, you know, sort of Atom tin toys, so Atom robot toys, as opposed to and just like a Astro generic Boy, robot. When we talk about Atom, yeah. we're talking yeah. about Astro Boy. Yeah, okay. Astro Boy uh, in, uh, in Japan, in Japanese, his name is Tetsuwan Atomu, so Tetsuwan Atom, and Tetsuwan means iron iron arm. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it does sort of, it does reconfigure over time sort of the imaginative space of children, you know, going from a generic, you know, robot toy to the Astro Boy robot toy um, does have effects. But I think one thing that's sort of important to keep in mind is that uh, even though uh, the anime, uh, Astro Boy anime, really inspired this sort of anime boom, and a lot of people who had been in the manga industry uh, jumped ship to newly created anime studios in the back half of the 1960s, um, partly because a lot of them wanted to get away from the new weekly manga paradigm, which was a lot more labor intensive, which jumping into anime to get out of labor is a terrible idea because animation has always been incredibly labor intensive. Um, and I think that's, that is the truth of the medium that transcends space and yeah, time. You need, a, you need a, a picture for 24 pictures a second. Like that's, that's everything is, yeah, everything's hand drawn. Yeah. Um, and and when like labor saving innovations have been introduced, um, you know, for example, computer animation, um, or, you know, the same thing goes with, uh, you know, uh, this on the comic side as well. So uh, when labor saving innovations are introduced, um, what happens is that, you know, the pay of creators gets cut <laughs> and then they have to work more hours, uh, you know, to make up that that pay, pay loss, basically. Yeah. Um, so but uh, so a lot of anime studios were formed in the back half of the 1960s and many of them did pretty well. Um, but a lot of them, you know, sort of struggled to find hits on the yeah. scale of Astro Boy. Um, so one love it to make it work. Like that's yeah. the thing that, 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 that is really hitting for me that, that for this particular form of, of, of industry to work, you need people to fall in love with it, to become fans. Yeah. And, and Tezuka was very lucky in that he had been in 1963, had been a professional manga creator for more than 15 years at that point. Um, so he was already sort of widely known and beloved. Um, the Astro Boy manga had actually appeared starting in the early 1950s. Uh, so it was also a, a well-known sort of story at that point. It wasn't sort of invented new for the anime. Um, so a lot of t anime studios by the end of the 1960s, um, to, to recoup, to make, to make their ends meet, they wind up sort of doing these sponsorship deals with toy companies. Mm. Um, and for much of the sort of 1970s up into the early 1980s, most anime, um, you know, with some exceptions, uh, which I think are the classic anime of the period for the reason, but most anime are basically sort of extended toy commercials. and um, 
anime studios would would be subsidized by toy companies who would tell them what products they wanted to promote that season. Uh, and then the anime would be done around sort of featuring that, those toys, um, you know, usually as like the ob- object themselves. So it was like, you know, if we want to feature this car toy, then they would draw the anime featuring the car to be extremely simplistic. Um, so that was a problem, but that was, that was kind of something that came to a head as a problem later. I want to jump to 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 a different part of, of of your book and talk about this new kind of uh, uh, industry uh, that, that that depends on people who love it. So let's talk about Comicat and the convention circuit. This the the consumer side, these fans. Tell me tell me about the dimension, the, the 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 development of, of fan culture at this time as well. Yeah. Um, and Tezuka plays a huge role here too, though not perhaps in the way he originally envisioned. Um, so manga fan clubs uh, organized around magazines um, had been sort of uh, a feature of manga with some irregularity since the 1930s. Um, and one of the things that Tezuka did with the money from the Astro Boy anime um, was to... Um, there was a Tetsuan Atamu fan club, um, which ran for the length of the anime serialization. So that ended in 1967. Um, and at the time, Tezuka and a lot of other manga creators were really concerned that um, the new weekly manga labor model, um, whereas before the mid-1960s, most manga magazines had been monthly, mm-hmm. um, over the course of the 1960s, to compete with and also to sort of slot into the new television-based paradigm of weekly programming, the majority of manga magazines uh, went to a weekly publication format, um, which meant that basically, um, whereas before the, the manga magazines were sort of a product in and of themselves, um, the manga magazines became advertisements for the product. Um, so the product became um, single volume anthologies of the manga, ind- individual manga became merchandise relating to the manga. Um, so, so, so with with the, the rise of these weeklies is a problem because it changes the economics of, of, of manga. Before you could just sell manga and make money off of selling manga. But now in the same way that anime is becoming an advertisement for, for, for toys, manga in this weekly format are too expensive to produce to make money just on their own. Yeah. So all of the magazines become loss, uh, loss leaders. They don't make a profit again until the mid eighties and nobody understands what to do when they make a profit again, because they weren't designed to make a profit. They were designed to promote, uh, other, you know, products published by the same company, basically the manga collections, uh, and other stuff. So the effect on the manga industry on the creative side was that you had this wild increase in the amount of labor you were expected to do a chapter a week, as opposed to a chapter per month. Um, and if people didn't leave the industry, they wound up hiring assistants, um, who worked in-house, on this kind of subcontracting model, which very quickly became widespread. Um, it's, it's not unsimilar to the way in which, you know, American comics, um, you know, every part of the image is done by somebody else, except, um, you know, in Marvel and DC, um, and this is also a labor move, a labor form that's sort of coming in, in this time period in America and in mainstream comics in America, um, in Marvel and DC, the subcontracting is done by the publisher it, on the Japan side, um, because manga creators own the copyright to their manga, uh, the subcontracting happens, uh, but from, from the manga creator. So if I'm somebody who's been hired to write a weekly manga, I will go out and find assistants and I will have them come to my apartment Mm. and help me draw lines and ink things and apply tones to the image. Um, And I will pay them directly out of my wages from the company. Um, So, um, how does this get to a comic convention? So, yeah. So the assistant model, um, one thing that happened was that uh, people who had been around for a while started wringing their hands about how this was the death of manga and the death of creativity. Um, and this is neither the first nor the last time that there had been widespread concerns about this. Um, the, the solution to this, of course, is to begin to regard manga as sort of along the auteur model, you know, where like the director is the head of the sort of a vast assemblage of people. And, and you, if you regard the manga creator in that same way, then, you know, you square the problem of manga are no longer artists and manga is doomed. But that took a bit of a while to sort of come in as a, as a mental model. So in the meantime, Tezuka and a bunch of other people were very concerned that the true spirit of manga was being lost. 
Um, and so what they wanted to do was to, what Tezuka wanted to do was to found a magazine, um, which he called Com, C-O-M, um, which he was going to show the true spirit of manga, um, you know, un, untrammeled by burdens of commercialism. Yeah. And, and one thing that Com did, um, as well as sort of solicit, uh, you know, manga from uh, newcomers around the country through contests and various things, um, they did debut a number of people who became uh, sort of prominent later on. Uh, it also had a mixture of stories uh, of manga from uh, Tezuka, from Ishinomori, uh, Shotaro, um, who was a huge creator at, at the time as well, uh, one of Tezuka's friends from way back. Um, but it also had this section um, called uh, Gurakam uh, at the back of it, which um, was Tezuka's attempt to sort of uh, instantiate and corral this national um, system of manga fan clubs um, through the uh com magazine um so the poor editors of com the magazine uh they didn't sign up to run sort of a national manga fan circuit through <laughs> the editorial offices in tokyo um and in fact there were uh quite a lot of sort of simmering labor disputes in in the mushi pro offices at this time uh, based on memoirs from people who worked there um so, but what they did um, to encourage manga fans who by this point were sort of, you know, it was, it was well accepted at this point that as a manga fan, one of the things you did was like you drew your own manga as a child. Right. Um, and so Calm the magazine um, through these clubs and through this system of clubs that they put in place really, um, you know, it made visible to other sort of manga fans who might be isolated in their schools or in their towns. It made visible to them that there was this network of people like them nationwide. Um, and it really put them in contact with each other through sort of this system of like local clubs and officers that they put in place. Um, and this is a, this is an era when, you know, um, sending postcards was really kind of the limit of ways people could easily communicate with one another. Long distance phone calls were still very expensive. Um, but through the comm uh, networks and through the comm um, in particular, they uh, had this feature where you could send in your manga, your doujinshi as it was called. Um, and, uh, you know, every month uh, they would have a contest where they would publish the best doujinshi that they liked. Hmm. Um, and they, they would offer sort of, you know, praise and constructive criticism uh, in this uh, gurakam section of the magazine. So, so, so we have a situation where, where, where manga's getting the speed of mangas is, is increasing. Manga artists are, are, are getting pushed to produce more and more and more. And because of this, they outsource a ton of their labor. Things get more commercial. This guy, Tezuka, who's made a lot of success, if not a lot of money from this new situation, he get, he wrings his hands over it and he decides, look, this is destroying the true spirit of manga. To recapture it, I'm going to make this magazine calm, which is going to enshrine the true spirit of manga. And part of that is he has like you know the good the good professional stuff, but at the back he asks anime fan clubs in, in mostly schools um, to send in letters, drawings, and these things called doujinshi. Does doujinshi refer to the to the fan clubs or to the to the art? The fan clubs are called circles, uh, sakuru, okay. um, and so which is which is you know an, an egalitarian image, right? Like a circle doesn't yeah. have a head. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody is sort of. More... It's the exact opposite of how man manga artists are contracting their work. We have one guy who is like the real manga artist, and everybody else is who's drawing the lines is is laboring under them. Yeah, and it's also um, you know at this by this point it was conventional to like, you know, if you're a manga fan and you meet Tezuka or somebody else at an event, you refer to them as sensei, um, which mm. means treat teacher. And it's a title of address of respect. Um, so manga fans, fandom had this sort of creators versus fans hierarchy, but the circle image really um, sort of, you know, uh, obviates that. And so people in these manga fan clubs, these circles are sort of equal on equal footing. And when they send in their fan comics, their doujinshi um, to uh, calm, you know, 
uh, it's being praised by these professional creators and editors, um, you know, who I'm, I'm not sure how they knew they, they decided what was like the true spirit of doujinshi or whatever, <laughs> but you know, they would say like, Oh, you know, like this is good. But like we saw in your doujinshi, like, you know, two of your members are getting like half the page count versus, you know, on the other half are you know, getting or splitting it between themselves. Like you need to be more egalitarian. You need to be more in the spirit of doujinshi. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so these back pages are serving not only as like an information clearinghouse, but like they're setting the tone for what it should be to be an independent amateur manga producer and fan. Yeah, to a really remarkable extent. Um, and I've read I've read materials put out by um, circles, sort of looking back at this period. Uh, there's one in a city uh, in Kitakyushu called As, which. Um, one of their doujin, she was featured in uh, Calm at really kind of a crucial moment because that club had been founded um, by some middle schoolers who all went to the same school. Uh, they Then it transpired, they went to different high schools and they were kind of on the point of disbanding when, um, you know, they were their doujin, she was featured in Calm and then um, other people from other parts of the community um, who didn't necessarily, you know, who went to different schools as well, sort of joined the club. Hmm. And um, the club has existed since then in the early oh, wow. 70s. So, yeah, so they've been around for more than 50 years. Um, so so through mechanisms like that, uh, the, the manga fan circles really sort of uh, survive and even thrive after Calm, the magazine, shuts down after four years in 1971. Um, they tried to revive it briefly, but it didn't have the parts that everybody liked best, which was the uh, doujinshi section. Um, so by the early 70s, you know, um, manga fan circles have become sort of much more commonplace. It's pretty easy to find them. And um, manga fans have become even more sort of into drawing their own um, manga and and you know photo reproduction methods are sort of coming into place now and it's getting cheaper to distribute and re- replicate and distribute your stuff which helps um so in uh so by 1975 uh you know there's these regional circuits and then there's also sort of a number of very famous national events in Tokyo um one of which was called Montai um and there was a circle called um Meiki or Labyrinth which um took sort of a took umbrage at some of Montai's kind of very hierarchical uh and exclusionary practices and decided to be circles. To, yeah, exactly. Um and so Montai, I think one of the female Mayhew members was barred from participating and um, you know, also they they thought that there wasn't enough focus on like fan activities, you know, um, because people are schlepping, you know, from all over the country to Tokyo for this like three day event. And I think one person said later, you know, like, I didn't come all the way to Tokyo just to talk about Cyborg 009, um, which was an (laughs) anime at the time. Yeah. Um, So, uh, so people who were in Meiku wanted to have a more sort of egalitarian event. Um, and after several months of work, they put on um, this comic market, as they called it, or Kamiket for short, uh, in December of 1975. Uh, and that had a number of rules which were sort of uh, unusual for the day, which was um, everybody was called a participant. Um, and, uh, there was, you know, was strictly forbidden to address anybody as sensei. Everybody who participated Hmm. was on an equal footing. Even Um, Tezuka, if Tezuka came, he was not sensei. If Tezuka came, he would just have been addressed as like San, you know, which is the standard, you know, Mr. Ms. Mix form of address. No, no hierarchies. Um, and it was devoted to, um, sort of the selling of copies of these fan manga, these doujinshi. Um, and so it, succeeded and became uh, pretty wildly popular. It was held three times a year until 1982 um, when uh, the people in charge, there was kind of a minor coup on the organizing committee uh, and more professional ways of running it were put in place and it was reduced to being biannual. Um, and by that point, each each uh, in- instance of the event was drawing more than 10,000 participants. Um, wow. And it's only grown since then. Now uh, more than half a million people come uh, twice a year. It's the biggest fan event in the world by a pretty large margin. Um, so that was sort of, uh, Kamiket, uh, which inspired a number of sort of, uh, regional similar events, uh, and really sort of, uh, provided a hub for, uh, 
manga fans as manga fans. Um, and, and one thing I think that has sort of been not paid attention to as much as the ways in which, um, you know, by sort of the mid eighties, the, the manga fan scene is really kind of driving, uh, the creativity of the manga industry as a whole. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a lot of sort of manga and anime that are professionally published now, um, that, that are coming out of people who came out of that scene. Um, and also just the ways in which, um, you know, fan fan sort of practices in that scene uh, then drive the kind of topics and mode of expression in the professional industries, um, which was kind of the goal of, of some of the people who founded Comiquette. They were like, you know, we think we think that the professional industry is kind of in this straitjacket of m- wanting to make profit, and we think you know there's like sort of vaster fields of manga expression that we could be exploring. Um, and if we go there sort of on this amateur basis, um, maybe we can drag the professionals along behind us. And, you, and that's can, really what happened. Do we have time to close with like, can you tell us like one uh, instance of a Kamiket doujinshi that, 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 that uh, went professional or that, 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 ha- that, that did this thing that, 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 that came out from, from, from the world of the circles and into the, the, the world of popular consciousness? Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a lot um, of specific examples. I think one that maybe a lot of people might be familiar with is um, the creators of Cardcaptor Sakura, who are a four-person collective called Clamp. They were originally an eight-person doujinshi circle uh, yeah. in the 80s, and uh, they went professional um, and, and lost people, and now they're four women. Um, they're a huge, huge uh, success story. There's many others, but... I think one of the more sort of general examples uh, is um, sort of more broader phenomenon in manga. Um, so in the in the mid 1970s, um, for example, there was uh, sort of this revolution in shoujo content and uh, in shoujo manga, manga for girls, it became sort of much more serious, uh, much more artistic, much more sort of exploring um, sort of the full gamut of human emotions and sexual relations. Um, in, in the book, you talk about how shoujo manga before this turn have 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 the love trap problem that they are little short story. They tend to be short stories, one offs where the entire story is about a girl who, you know, doesn't doesn't feel good, who finds fulfillment by falling in love with a boy but the boy loves her for passivity. She falls in love. She's complete. The end. Right. And, and maybe if you were sort of, you know, if you were lucky, you would turn the page after the first kiss and then there would be a shot of them married with a baby. Um, <laughs> what happens <laughs> between the turning of the page? But these, but these the, the Shi who are writing shoujo manga, uh, they have a much more different, uh, sometimes more adult uh, more complicated uh, view of what shoujo manga could be. Yeah, and 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 in a lot of ways, you know, the shoujo revolution is really sort of about like what happens in that turn of the page. You know, so how can we go from these extremely hackneyed um, one shot stories, shoujo manga in this in the period of of these commercial doldrums was held up as sort of you know the example of manga that was terrible. Um, but over the course of the late 1960s through sort of early to mid 1970s, it becomes the sort of subgenre, the genre of the, of manga that's at the forefront of the medium, um, in terms of artistic and storytelling innovations. Um, so, um, but it wasn't, it still wasn't necessarily super well known outside of sort of, uh, you know, groups of girls and women who are reading the manga. But one thing that happened, uh, through Comicat in particular was, um, all these sort of uh, shoujo manga fans, uh, you know, who were then became then started reading uh, these manga um, by these women creators, um, even though they themselves were not sort of middle and high school girls. Um, Mm. So male manga fans in particular, um, if they hadn't already heard about uh, these creators, you know, uh, through through shoujo manga, uh, they became they started reading these manga, you know, because people would be like, this is the real deal. Like, you have to read, you know, Heart of Thomas or the Poe clan. Like, this is real, real human emotion in here. Um, and uh, as the 70s wore on, the shoujo creators, a lot of them sort of started going into sort of more science fictional stories as well, which appealed to the times. Um, 
so so shoujo manga um, really sort of got a boost through these sort of fan networks uh, and the creators of the shoujo revolution. You know, there were they had their own fan clubs. There were also a lot of circles who were devoted exclusively to their works. Um, hmm. And that that sort of fandom really sort of powered Kamaket in the early years until sort of the late 1970s when uh, science fiction became bigger through Star Wars and space battleship Yamato um, and Gundam also in the early 80s, at which point the gender balance of Kamaket starts to shift. It had been majority female in the beginning. And then um, by the early 80s, it had reached parity, if not sort of a slight gender uh, imbalance towards men. Um, so that's sort of one success story. Um, and there's many other aspects of the shoujo revolution, but it was definitely, you know, its popular popularity was partly driven by these manga fans at Comic Hit and other events who were like, you know, we don't care about genre. We're just going to read this because it's good. Um, and because by that point, uh, the oil shock um, after the oil embargoes, uh, a lot of other manga aside from shoujo had become sort of hackneyed and commercialist mm-hmm. again. So it was really, if you wanted to read stuff that was interesting, it was shoujo manga or nothing, uh, which is an interesting kind of inversion from, you know, 10 years before. Um, so that's one sort of uh, development that was partially powered by um, uh, this doujinji sphere, as I call it in the book. But there's also, um, there's a Two more, two more, um, and particular one more that I'll talk about briefly, um, which is uh, the phenomenon of boys love manga, um, which was started by a lot of uh, shoujo uh, revolution creators at the time. It was called Shonen Ai, um, which literally translates to boys love, um, but now uh, the, the common term is BL, which stands for boys love. Um, which featured a lot of um, same-sex relationships between uh, young men, usually uh, middle or high school students in the early years. Um, so a lot of the shoujo revolution uh, creators it to try to get around this sort of heterosexual love trap on one level. Um, you know, they decided to tell sort of same-sex romance stories instead. Um, and over the course of the 1970s, this content, you know, became so popular that it actually wound up spawning, um, you know, this sort of its own genre of, of BL manga, um, which to this day is an extremely popular genre of manga um, and also uh, continues to be sort of a mixture of uh, fan and professional content. Um, so the first uh Boys Love Magazine or Shonen Eye Magazine, June A, um, started in, I believe, 78. Um, and it was sort of powered through these this mixture of professional content and then also fan submissions. What, what about the Boys Love plot made it more creatively rich? How, 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 how did that enable people to tell love stories or psychological stories in a, in, in, in a different way? Like, why was breaking out of the heterosexual boy meets girl thing generative for, for, for these creators? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think one thing to um, keep in mind is that the way that manga sort of uh, got, got out of this trap of being uh, sort of, you know, degenerate reading material in the 1950s and early 1960s was um, one thing that the weekly manga innovation uh, allowed manga as a, as a industry to do is to kind of um, suture itself to this sort of post-war gender order. I mentioned the corporate labor unions um, at the beginning. One thing that this sort of corporate paradigm and this, uh, you know, this drive towards GDP growth really did was um, set up this very strict gender order of, uh, you know, production roles in Japan. So, so the social idea becomes the white collar salary man husband, and then the housewife at home in this very sort of modern household. Um, and and manga and, 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 really and salary men do things, but housewives just make salary men happy and clean. So the plots yes, can't and, go and very raise far. the children. Yeah, yeah. you know. And if, and, and if house... the housewife is a good housewife, there's no story there because they just make things clean. Right. And pretty. Yeah, yeah, and and again, and raise the children. So um, so manga really sort of sutures itself to this post-war order. Um, by, um, you know, creating these two new genres of shonen manga and shoujo manga, boys and girls manga. Before the mid-1960s, it had not been differentiated by gender. It had all just been children's manga. Um, uh, so kodomo manga, as it was called, that sort of, you know, sort of 20s and 30s paradigm falls by the wayside. Um, and shonen and shoujo manga begin promoting these um, sort of wildly different gender roles. 
Um, so Shoujo becomes very hackneyed and has these one-shot stories about falling in love and getting married. Um, shonen at the same period becomes um, extremely violent. Uh, there's a lot. Um, if you look at ma- shonen manga from the 70s in particular, there's a really shocking degree of sort of casual sexual violence. And you're like, this is theoretically marketed at middle schoolers. You have, you have, um, a, you have an image of a, of, of a cover of a, a, of a magazine, a, a shonen magazine that is marketed towards children. And it's just like a bunch of limbs, like disconnected from bodies and blood everywhere. I mean, it's cool. I've, I was a teenage boy. That's cool. I would buy it. But it's, 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 it's shocking compared, especially with the, the restraints on, on uh, shoujo manga. Yeah. So, so shoujo manga is sort of wedded to this patriarchal paradigm of, you know, telling girls that like, this is what they have to, you know, this is what, you know, they have to look forward to. Um, and, and the shoujo revolution creators, uh, a lot of whom were, were queer, um, and were not themselves straight, or at least were not interested in, in heterosexual relationships on the terms of society. Um, you know, they, they want to sort of subvert this, but, you know, they can't imaginatively like get there in terms of a heterosexual relationship. Um, so one of the things they do, and, and also because they were interested in same sex relationships in and of themselves, but they, they start telling these stories of same sex relationships because when you don't have the gender difference, you know, you don't have the sort of, uh, the accompanying, uh, sort of gender expectations uh, mm. and imbalance of, of power between genders. Yeah. By, by, by making it a, a homosexual rather than heterosexual relationship, the usual gender norms aren't available. So everybody has to like find their own way in a way that's like narratively interesting. Yeah. And that's certainly, you know, I think one of the things that, that the creators wanted to do, um, which is part of the reason why it's so why it's so interesting that like a lot of these early sort of shoujo manga, you know, shonen eye stories, um, you know, rape is such a huge factor in uh, a lot of these stories. A lot of these relationships are sort of you know uh, foreclosed by by sexual violence. Uh, hmm. You know, so so it really sort of portrays the limits of the imagination, even as, you know, people are are very actively challenging, you know, their editors and challenging these paradigms. Um, you know, it, it still sort of shows how far, you know, there was left to go. One of the manga that did sort of try to portray a, an equal heterosexual relationship was called The Rose of Versailles, um, which is one of my favorites. But uh, it's set in the French Revolution era. There's this woman who's been raised um, to take a man's role in the royal guard. Um, and she eventually does have this very touching romance with her childhood friend, um, a family servant. Um, but even there, um, you know, like they don't get together until he's been blinded in one eye. Um, and then, you know, very soon after they have, you know, after they um, have their, you know, sort of first sex scene together. And, um, and is it a sex scene? Are there are like, does, does the page turn and they have a baby? No, it's or a sex it, scene. There's, there's sex scenes in these manga. They're very, they're very tame by today's standards. Like you look at them and you're like, they appear to only be touching at the shoulders. I don't get it. Um, but you know, this was hugely risque at the time, but so in Rosa Versailles, you know, Oscar and Andre, uh, you know, they have their, uh, they consummate their love and then he gets killed in storming the Bastille like a day later. <laughs> and then Oscar dies like a day, like a couple days after that. So, you know, even even that creator, Ikeda Ryoko, you know, she, you know, was trying for this sort of, you know, equality between a man and a woman in a relationship. And, you know, there's this class divide between Andre and Oscar. There's, you know, again, he he has to be blinded in one eye, um, you and know, he's a servant. Yes. And he, and he's a servant. Um, and then, you know, they both die. <laughs> so. it, shows, it, shows, it shows how poisonous that love trap narrative is that like to, to, to have heterosexual sex in a story like this, everybody just has to die because, because otherwise you turn the page and there's a happy ending and the, the woman no longer has agency and no longer has a story. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's still a problem, you know, um, gender relations in Japan are still, uh, you know, pretty poor in terms of equality, um, between genders. Um, but so, so that was one of the reasons that sort of same sex relationships were so interesting to, um, 
you know, readers at the time and still. And and another reason was that um, because they were same sex relationships, uh, they could go a bit further in the sex scenes. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, these creators wanted to portray, you know, sex scenes and sex and relationships in a more, you know, like realistic way. Um, but, you know, they just couldn't do that with heterosexual romances. So they're like, but with same sex romance, we can we can be a bit more explicit. So um, so and so really the the, the shonen eye, which then becomes boys love uh, sort of subgenre really is fueled by, um, you know, the, the fan scene, the doujinshi sphere. Um, and it and to a really interesting extent, it is still very much in contact with um this doujin sphere and as time has gone on since the 70s um more and more popular anime and manga have been adapted very directly from um creators uh in in this doujin sphere um and as sort of the, the professional manga industry has sort of lost some of its luster in terms of sales um and creators are sort of increasingly uh sort of not really seeing a difference between sort of you know professionally producing their content and then also just selling it, uh, at, at comic events, hmm. um, which is an interesting, interesting period, uh, p- paradigm compared to, you know, uh, comics in other places. And I think that's really one of the things that has driven the popularity of manga in Japanese society. And then also, um, that keeps it fresh and keeps, you know, anime and manga, uh, and video games as well. Um, sort of interesting and, you know, powers sort of the fandom of people around the world. Well, this this, this was super cool. I, I I learned a ton about about anime and manga and about how generative being a fan was. Thank thank you so much for 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 joining me today, Andrea. Um, thank you to everybody who listens. Uh, if you listen, I will thank you even more if you tell people about the show and tell your in laws. Um, if you have in laws, or tell your future in laws if you have future in laws, or if you just like a person, tell their parents and see what happens. Um, Thank you to Duncan Barton for the image and for Jonathan Lear for the music. We will probably be back next week if I have time to record during the fires. 